Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapter 2 of The 39 Steps by John Buchan. The Milkman Sets Out on His Travels I sat down in an armchair and felt very sick. That lasted for maybe five minutes and was succeeded by a fit of the horrors. The poor, staring white face on the floor was more than I could bear and I managed to get a tablecloth and cover it. Then I staggered to a cupboard, found the brandy, and swallowed several mouthfuls. I had seen men die violently before. Indeed, I had killed a few myself in the Matabeel War. But this cold-blooded indoor business was different. Still, I managed to pull myself together. I looked at my watch and saw that it was half-past ten. An idea seized me and I went over the flat with a small tooth comb. There was nobody there, nor any trace of anybody, but I shuttered and bolted all the windows and put the chain on the door. By this time my wits were coming back to me, and I could think again. It took me about an hour to figure the thing out, and I did not hurry, for, unless the murderer came back, I had till about six o'clock in the morning for my cogitations. I was in the soup, that was pretty clear. Any shadow of a doubt I might have had about the truth of Scudder's tale was now gone. The proof of it was lying under the tablecloth. The men who knew that he knew what he knew had found him, and had taken the best way to make certain of his silence. Yes, but he'd been in my rooms four days, and his enemies must have reckoned that he had confided in me. So I would be the next to go. It might be that very night, or next day, or the day after, but my number was up all right. Then suddenly I thought of another probability. Supposing I went out now and called in the police, or went to bed and let Paddock find the body and call them in the morning. What kind of story was I to tell about Scudder? I had lied to Paddock about him, and the whole thing looked desperately fishy. If I made a clean breast of it and told the police everything he had told me, they would simply laugh at me. The odds were a thousand to one that I'd be charged with the murder, and the circumstantial evidence was strong enough to hang me. Few people knew me in England. I had no real pal who could come forward and swear to my character. Perhaps that was what those secret enemies were playing for. They were clever enough for anything, and an English prison was as good a way of getting rid of me till after June 15th as a knife in my chest. Besides, if I told the whole story, and by any miracle was believed, I would be playing their game. Carolitas would stay at home, which is what they wanted. Somehow or other, the sight of Scudder's dead face had made me a passionate believer in his scheme. He was gone, but he had taken me into his confidence, and I was pretty well bound to carry on his work. You may think this ridiculous for a man in danger of his life, but that was the way I looked at it. I'm an ordinary sort of fellow, not braver than other people, but I hate to see a good man down, and that long knife would not be the end of Scudder if I could play the game in his place. It took me an hour or two to think this out, and by that time I'd come to a decision. I must vanish somehow, and keep vanished till the end of the second week in June. Then I must somehow find a way to get in touch with the government people and tell them what Scudder had told me. I wished to heaven he had told me more, 
and that I'd listened more carefully to the little he had told me. I knew nothing but the barest facts. There was a big risk that, even if I weathered the other dangers, I would not be believed in the end. I must take my chance of that, and hope that something might happen which would confirm my tale in the eyes of the government. My first job was to keep going for the next three weeks. It was now the 24th day of May, and that meant 20 days of hiding before I could venture to approach the powers that be. I reckoned that two sets of people would be looking for me, Scudder's enemies to put me out of existence, and the police, who would want me for Scudder's murder. It was going to be a giddy hunt, and it was queer how the prospect comforted me. I'd been slack so long that almost any chance of activity was welcome. When I had to sit alone with that corpse and wait on fortune, I was no better than a crushed worm. But if my next safety was to hang on my own wits, I was prepared to be cheerful about it. My next thought was whether Scudder had any papers about him to give me a better clue to the business. I drew back the tablecloth and searched his pockets, for I had no longer any shrinking from the body. The face was wonderfully calm for a man who had been struck down in a moment. There was nothing in the breast pocket, and only a few loose coins and a cigar holder in the waistcoat. The trousers held a little penknife and some silver, and the side pocket of his jacket contained an old crocodile-skin cigar case. There was no sign of the little black book in which I had seen him making notes. That had no doubt been taken by his murderer. But as I looked up from my task, I saw that some drawers had been pulled out in the writing table. Scudder would never have left them in that state, for he was the tidiest of mortals. Someone must have been searching for something, perhaps for the pocketbook. I went round the flat and found that everything had been ransacked. The inside of books, drawers, cupboards, boxes, even the pockets of the clothes in my wardrobe, and the sideboard in the dining room. There was no trace of the book. Most likely the enemy had found it, but they had not found it on Scudder's body. Then I got out an atlas and looked at the big map of the British Isles. My notion was to get off to some wild district where my veld craft would be of some use to me, for I would be like a trapped rat in a city. I considered that Scotland would be best, for my people were Scotch, and I could pass anywhere as an ordinary Scotsman. I had half an idea at first to be a German tourist, for my father had had German partners, and I had been brought up to speak the tongue pretty fluently, not to mention having put in three years prospecting for copper in German Demarland. But I calculated that it would be less conspicuous to be a Scot, and less in line with what the police might know of my past. I fixed on Galloway as the best place to go. It was the nearest wild part of Scotland, so far as I could figure it out, and from the look of the map was not over-thick with population. A search in Bradshaw informed me that a train left St. Pancras at 7.10, which would land me at any Galloway station in the late afternoon. That was well enough, but a more important matter was how I was to make my way to St. Pancras, for I was pretty certain that Scudder's friends would be watching outside. This puzzled me for a bit, and then I had an inspiration, on which I went to bed and slept for two troubled hours. I got up at four and opened my bedroom shutters. The faint light of a fine summer morning was flooding the skies, 
and the sparrows had begun to chatter. I had a great revulsion of feeling and felt a God-forgotten fool. My inclination was to let things slide and trust to the British police taking a reasonable view of my case. But as I reviewed the situation, I could find no arguments to bring against my decision of the previous night. So with a wry mouth, I resolved to go on with my plan. I was not feeling in any particular funk, only disinclined to go looking for trouble, if you understand me. I hunted out a well-used tweed suit, a pair of strong nailed boots, and a flannel shirt with a collar. Into my pockets I stuffed a spare shirt, a cloth cap, some handkerchiefs, and a toothbrush. I had drawn a good sum in gold from the bank two days before in case Scudder should want money, and I took fifty pounds of it in sovereigns in a belt which I had brought back from Rhodesia. That was about all I wanted. Then I had a bath and cut my mustache, which was long and drooping, into a short, stubbly fringe. Now came the next step. Paddock used to arrive punctually at 7.30 and let himself in with a latch key. But about 20 minutes to 7, as I knew from bitter experience, the milkman turned up with a great clatter of cans and deposited my share outside my door. I had seen that milkman sometimes when I'd gone out for an early ride. He was a young man about my own height, with an ill-nourished mustache, and he wore a white overall. On him, I staked all my chances. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. I went into the darkened smoking room where the rays of morning light were beginning to creep through the shutters. There I breakfasted off a whiskey and soda and some biscuits from the cupboard. By this time it was getting on for six o'clock. I put a pipe in my pocket and filled my pouch from the tobacco jar on the table by the fireplace. As I poked into the tobacco, my fingers touched something hard, and I drew out Scudder's little black pocketbook. That seemed to me a good omen. I lifted the cloth from the body and was amazed at the peace and dignity of the dead face. Goodbye, old chap, I said. I'm going to do my best for you. Wish me well, wherever you are. Then I hung about in the hall waiting for the milkman. That was the worst part of the business, for I was fairly choking to get out of doors. 6.30 passed, then 6.40, but still he did not come. The fool had chosen this day of all days to be late. At one minute after the quarter to seven, I heard the rattle of the cans outside. I opened the front door, then there was my man, singling out my cans from a bunch he carried and whistling through his teeth. He jumped a bit at the sight of me. "'Come in here a moment,' I said. "'I want a word with you.' And I led him into the dining room. "'I reckon you're a bit of a sportsman,' I said. "'And I want you to do me a service. "'Lend me your cap and overall for ten minutes, "'and here's a sovereign for you.' His eyes opened at the sight of the gold, and he grinned broadly. "'What's the game?' he asked. "'A bet.' I said. I haven't time to explain, but to win it I've got to be a milkman for the next ten minutes. All you've got to do is stay here till I come back. You'll be a bit late, but nobody will complain, and you'll have that quid for yourself. 
Right o he said cheerily. I ain't the man to spoil a bit of sport. Here's the rig, Gubna. I stuck on his flat blue hat and his white overall, picked up the cans, banged my door, and went whistling downstairs. The porter at the foot told me to shut my jaw, which sounded as if my makeup was a- which sounded to me as if my makeup was adequate. At first I thought there was nobody in the street. Then I caught sight of a policeman a hundred yards down and a loafer shuffling past on the other side. Some impulse made me raise my eyes to the house opposite, and there at a first-floor window was a face. As the loafer passed, he looked up, and I fancied a signal was exchanged. I crossed the street, whistling gaily and imitating the jaunty swing of the milkman. Then I took the first side street and went up a left-hand turning which led past a bit of vacant ground. There was no one in the little street, so I dropped the milk cans inside the hoarding and sent the cap and overall after them. I had only just put on my cloth cap when a postman came round the corner. I gave him a good morning, and he answered me unsuspiciously. At the moment, the clock of a neighboring church struck the hour of seven. There was not a second to spare. As soon as I got to Euston Road, I took to my heels and ran. The clock at Euston Station showed five minutes past the hour. At St. Pancras, I had no time to take a ticket, let alone that I had not settled upon my destination. A porter told me the platform, and as I entered it, I saw the train already in motion. Two station officials blocked the way, but I dodged them and clambered onto the last carriage. Three minutes later, as we were roaring through the northern tunnels, an irate guard interviewed me. He wrote out for me a ticket to Newton Stewart, a name which had suddenly come back to my memory, and he conducted me from the first-class compartment where I had ensconced myself to a third-class smoker, occupied by a sailor and a stout woman with a child. He went off grumbling, and as I mopped my brow, I observed to my companions in my broadest Scots that it was a sore job catching trains. I had already entered upon my part. The impudence of that god! said the lady, bitterly. He needed a Scotch tongue to put him in his place. He was complaining of this we and no having a ticket, and her no fowl till August twelve month, and he was objecting to this gentleman spitting. The sailor morosely agreed, and I started my new life in an atmosphere of protest against authority. I reminded myself that a week ago I'd been finding the world dull. Chapter 3 THE ADVENTURE OF THE LITERARY INNKEEPER I had a solemn time traveling north that day. It was fine May weather, with the hawthorn flowering on every hedge, and I asked myself why, when I was still a free man, I had stayed on in London and not got the good of this heavenly country. I didn't dare face the restaurant car, but I got a luncheon basket at Leeds and shared it with the fat woman. Also, I got the morning's papers, with news about starters for the Derby at the beginning of the cricket season, and some paragraphs about how Balkan affairs were settling down and a British squadron was going to Kiel. When I'd done with them, I had got out Scudder's little black pocketbook and was studying it. It was pretty well filled with jottings, chiefly figures, though now and then a name was printed in. For example, I found the words Hofgard and Luneville and Avocado pretty often, and especially the word Pavia. 
Now, I was certain that Scudder never did anything without a reason, and I was pretty sure that there was a cipher in all this. That is a subject which has always interested me, and I did a bit of it myself once as an intelligence officer at Delagoa Bay during the Boer War. I have a head for things like chess and puzzles, and I used to reckon myself pretty good at finding out ciphers. This one looked like the numerical kind where sets of figures correspond to the letters of the alphabet. But any fairly shrewd man can find the clue to that sort after an hour or two's work. And I didn't think Scudder would have been content with anything so easy. So I fastened on the printed words, for you can make a pretty good numerical cipher if you have a key word which gives you the sequence of the letters. I tried for hours, but none of the words answered. Then I fell asleep and woke at Dumfries just in time to bundle out and get into the slow Galloway train. There was a man on the platform whose looks I didn't like, but he never glanced at me, and when I caught sight of myself in the mirror of an automatic machine, I didn't wonder. With my brown face, my old tweeds, and my slouch, I was the very model of one of the hill farmers who were crowding into third-class carriages. I traveled with half a dozen in an atmosphere of shag and clay pipes, they had come from the weekly market, and their mouths were full of prices. I had heard accounts of how the lambing had gone up the cairn and the douche and a dozen other mysterious waters. Above half the men had lunched heavily and were highly flavored with whiskey, so they took no notice of me. We rumbled slowly into a land of little wooded glens and then to a great wide moorland place, gleaming with locks, with high blue hills showing northwards. About five o'clock, the carriage had emptied, and I was left alone as I had hoped. I got out at the next station, a little place whose name I scarcely noted, set right in the heart of a bog. It reminded me of one of those forgotten little stations in the Karoo. An old station master was digging in his garden, and with his spade over his shoulder, sauntered to the drain, took charge of a parcel, and then went back to his potatoes. A child of ten received my ticket, and I emerged on a white road that straggled over the brown moor. It was a gorgeous spring evening, with every hill showing as clear as a cut amethyst. The air had the queer, rooty smell of bogs, but it was as fresh as mid-ocean, and it had the strangest effect upon my spirits. I actually felt light-hearted. I might have been a boy out for a spring holiday tramp, instead of a man of thirty-seven, very much wanted by the police. I felt just as I used to feel when I was starting for a big trek on a frosty morning on a high veld. If you believe me, I swung along that road, whistling. There was no plan of campaign in my head, only just to go on and on in this blessed, honest-smelling hill country, for every mile put me in better humor with myself. In a roadside planting I cut a walking stick of hazel and presently struck off the highway up a bypath which followed the glen of a brawling stream. I reckoned that I was still far ahead of any pursuit, and for that night might please myself. It was some hours since I had tasted food, and I was getting very hungry when I came to a herd's cottage set in a nook beside a waterfall. A brown-faced woman was standing by the door, and greeted me with the kindly shyness of the moorland places. When I asked for a night's lodging, she said I was welcome to the bed in the loft, and very soon she set before me a heavy meal of ham and eggs, scones, and thick, sweet milk. 
At the darkening, her man came in from the hills, a lean giant, who in one step covered as much ground as three paces of ordinary mortals. They asked me no questions, for they had the perfect breeding of all dwellers in the wild. But I could see they set me down as a kind of a dealer, and I took some trouble to confirm their view. I spoke a lot about cattle, of which my host knew little, and I picked up from him a good deal about the local Galloway markets, which I tucked away in my memory for future use. At ten o'clock I was nodding in my chair, and the bed in the loft received a weary man who never opened his eyes till five o'clock a.m. set the little homestead a-going once more. They refused any payment, and by six I had breakfasted and was striding southwards again. My notion was to return to the railway line, a station or two farther on than the place where I had alighted yesterday, and to double back. I reckoned that that was the safest way, for the police would naturally assume that I was always making farther from London in the direction of some western port. I thought I had still a good bit of a start, for, as I reasoned, it would take some hours to fix the blame on me, and several more to identify the fellow who got on board the train at St. Pancras. It was the same jolly, clear spring weather, and I simply could not contrive to feel careworn. Instead, I was in better spirits than I had been for months. Over a long ridge of moorland, I took my road, skirting the side of a high hill, which the herd had called Cairnsmore of Fleet. Nesting curlews and plovers were crying everywhere, and the links of green pasture by the streams were dotted with young lambs. All the slackness of the past months was slipping from my bones, and I stepped out like a four-year-old. By and by I came to a swell of moorland which dipped to the vale of a little river, and a mile away in the heather I saw the smoke of a train. The station, when I reached it, proved to be ideal for my purpose. The moor surged up around it and left room only for the single line, the slender siding, a waiting room, an office, the station master's cottage, and a tiny yard of gooseberries and sweet William. There seemed no road to it from anywhere, and to increase the desolation, the waves of a tarn lapped on their gray granite beach half a mile away. I waited in the deep heather till I saw the smoke of an east-going train on the horizon. Then I approached the tiny booking office and took a ticket for Dumfries. The only occupants of the carriage were an old shepherd and his dog, a wall-eyed brute that I mistrusted. The man was asleep, and on the cushions beside him was that morning's Scotchman. Eagerly I seized on it, for I fancied it would tell me something. There were two columns about the Portland Place murder, as it was called. My man Paddock had given the alarm and had the milkman arrested. Poor devil, it looked as if the latter had earned his sovereign hardly. But for me it had been cheap at the price for he seemed to have occupied the police for the better part of the day. In the latest news I found a further installment of the story. The milkman had been released, I read, and the true criminal, about whose identity the police were reticent, was believed to have got away from London by one of the northern lines. There was a short note about me as the owner of the flat. I guess the police had stuck that in as a clumsy contrivance to persuade me that I was unsuspected. There was nothing else in the paper. Nothing about foreign politics or Carolitas or the things that had interested Scudder. I laid it down and found that we were approaching the station at which I had got out yesterday. 
the potato-digging station master had been gingered up into some activity, for the west-going train was waiting to let us pass, and from it had descended three men who were asking him questions. I supposed that they were the local police, who had been stirred up by Scotland Yard, and had traced me as far as this one-horse siding. Sitting well back in the shadow, I watched them carefully. One of them had a book and took down notes. The old potato digger seemed to have turned peevish, but the child who had collected my ticket was talking volubly. All the party looked out across the moor where the white road departed. I hope they are going to take up my tracks there. As we moved away from that station, my companion woke up. He fixed me with a wandering glance, kicked his dog viciously, and inquired where he was. Clearly, he was very drunk. "'That's what becomes of being a teetoller,' he observed, in bitter regret. I expressed my surprise that in him I should have met a blue-ribbon stalwart. "'Aye, but I'm a strong teetoller,' he said pugnaciously. "'I took the pledge last Martinmas, and haven't touched a drop of whiskey since. Not even at Hogmany, though I was sore tempted.' He swung his heels up on the seat and burrowed a frowsy head into the cushions. "'And this is what I get,' he moaned. "'A head better than hellfire, and twain looking different ways for the Sabbath.' "'What did it?' I asked. "'A drink they call cabrandy. Being a teetotaler, I kept off the whiskey, but I was nip-nipping a day at this brandy.' "'and I doubt I'll be well for a fortnight.' "'His voice died away into a splutter, "'and sleep once more laid its heavy hand on him. "'My plan had been to get out at some station down the line, "'but the train suddenly gave me a better chance, "'for it came to a standstill at the end of a culvert "'which spanned a brawling, porter-colored river. "'I looked out and saw that every carriage window was closed "'and no human figure appeared in the landscape.' So I opened the door and dropped quickly under the tangle of hazels which edged the line. It would have been all right, but for that infernal dog. Under the impression that I was decamping with its master's belongings, it started to bark and all but got me by the trousers. This woke up the herd who stood bawling at the carriage door in the belief that I had committed suicide. I crawled through the thicket, reached the edge of the stream, and in cover of the bushes put a hundred yards or so behind me. Then from my shelter I peered back and saw the guard and several passengers gathered round the open carriage door and staring in my direction. I could not have made a more public departure if I had left with a bugler and a brass band. Happily the drunken herd provided a diversion. He and his dog, which was attached by a rope to his waist, suddenly cascaded out of the carriage, landed on their heads on the track, and rolled some way down the bank towards the water. In the rescue which followed, the dog bit somebody, for I could hear the sound of hard swearing. Presently, they had forgotten me, and when after a quarter of a mile's crawl I ventured to look back, the train had started again and was vanishing in the cutting. I was in a wide semicircle of moorland, with the brown river as radius and the high hills forming the northern circumference. There was not a sign or sound of a human being, only the plashing water and the interminable crying of curlews. Yet, oddly enough, for the first time, I felt the terror of the hunted on me. It was not the police that I thought of, but the other Volk, 
who knew that I knew Scudder's secret and dared not let me live. I was certain that they would pursue me with a keenness and vigilance unknown to the British law, and that once their grip closed on me, I should find no mercy. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now we return to our show. I looked back, but there was nothing in the landscape. The sun glinted on the metals of the line and wet stones in the stream, and you could not have found a more peaceful sight in the world. Nevertheless, I started to run. Crouching low in the runnels of the bog, I ran till the sweat blinded my eyes. The mood did not leave me till I had reached the rim of the mountain and flung myself panting on a ridge high above the young waters of the Brown River. From my vantage ground, I could scan the whole moor right away to the railway line and to the south of it where green fields took the place of heather. I have eyes like a hawk, but I could see nothing moving in the whole countryside. Then I looked east beyond the ridge and saw a new kind of landscape. Shallow green valleys with plentiful fir plantations and the faint lines of dust which spoke of high roads. Last of all, I looked into the blue May sky and there I saw that which set my pulses racing. Low down in the south, a monoplane was climbing into the heavens. I was certain as if I had been told that that aeroplane was looking for me, and that it did not belong to the police. For an hour or two I watched it from a pit of heather. It flew low along the hilltops, and then in narrow circles over the valley up which I had come. Then it seemed to change its mind, rose to a great height, and flew away back to the south. I did not like this espionage from the air, and I began to think less well of the countryside I had chosen for a refuge. These heather hills were no sort of cover if my enemies were in the sky, and I must find a different kind of sanctuary. I looked with more satisfaction to the green country beyond the ridge, for there I should find woods and stone houses. About six in the evening I came out of the moorland to a white ribbon of road which wound up the narrow vale of a lowland stream. As I followed it, fields gave place to bent, the glen became a plateau, Presently I had reached the kind of pass where a solitary house smoked in the twilight. The road swung over a bridge, and leaning on the parapet was a young man. He was smoking a long clay pipe and studying the water with spectacled eyes. In his left hand was a small book with a finger marking the place. Slowly he repeated, As when a griffin to the wilderness with winged step, or hill and moory dale, pursued the heiress Maspian. He jumped round as my step rung on the keystone, and I saw a pleasant sunburst boyish face. "'Good evening to you,' he said gravely. "'It's a fine night for the road.' The smell of peat smoke and of some savory roast floated to me from the house. "'Is that place an inn?' I asked. "'At your service,' he said politely. "'I'm the landlord, sir, and I hope you will stay the night.' "'For to tell you the truth, I've had no company for a week.' "'I pulled myself up on the parapet of the bridge and filled my pipe. "'I began to detect an ally. "'You're awfully young to be an innkeeper,' I said. "'Ah, well, my father died a year ago and left me the business. "'I lived there with my grandmother. "'It's a slow job for a young man, and it wasn't my choice of profession.' "'Which was?' 
he actually blushed. "'I want to write books,' he said. "'And what better chance could you ask?' I cried. "'Man, I've often thought that an innkeeper would make the best storyteller in the world.' "'Not now,' he said eagerly. "'Maybe in the old days when you had pilgrims and ballad makers "'and highwaymen and mail coaches on the road. "'But not now. "'Nothing comes here but motor cars full of fat women "'who stop for lunch and a fisherman or two in the spring "'and the shooting tenants in August. "'There's not much material to be got out of that. "'I want to see life, to travel the world, "'and write things like Kipling and Conrad. "'But the most I've done yet "'is get some verses printed in Chambers' journal.' I looked at the inn standing golden in the sunset against the brown hills. I've knocked about a bit in the world. I wouldn't despise such a hermitage. Do you think that adventure is found only in the tropics or among gentry in red shirts? Maybe you're rubbing shoulders with it right at this moment. That's what Kipling says, he said, his eyes brightening, and he quoted some verse about Romance brings up the 915. Here's a true tale for you then. I cried, and a month from now, you can make a novel out of it. Sitting on the bridge in the soft Meg gloaming, I pitched him a lovely yarn. It was true in essentials, too, though I altered the minor details. I made out that it was a mining magnet from Kimberley, who had had a lot of trouble with IDB and had shown up a gang. They had pursued me across the ocean and had killed my best friend, and were now on my tracks. I told the story well, though I say it, who shouldn't? I pictured a flight across the Kalahari to German Africa, the crackling, parching days, the wonderful blue velvet nights. I described an attack on my life in the voyage home, and I made a really horrid affair of the Portland Place murder. If you're looking for adventure, I cried, well, you found it here. The devils are after me, and the police are after them. It's a race that I mean to win. "'By God!' he whispered, drawing his breath in sharply. "'It's all pure Ryder Haggard and Conan Doyle. "'You believe me?' I said gratefully. "'Of course I do.' And he held out his hand. "'I believe everything out of the common. "'The only thing to distrust is the normal.' He was very young, but he was the man for my money. "'I think they're off my track for the moment, "'but I must lie close for a couple of days.' "'Can you take me in?' "'He caught my elbow in his eagerness "'and drew me towards the house. "'You can lie as snug here "'as if you were in a moss hole. "'I'll see that nobody blabs either, "'and you'll give me some more material "'about your adventures?' "'As I entered the inn porch, "'I heard from far off the beat of an engine, "'and there silhouetted against the dusky west "'was my friend, the monoplane. "'He gave me a room at the back of the house "'with a fine outlook over the plateau.' and he made me free of his own study, which was stacked with cheap editions of his favorite authors. I never saw the grandmother, so I guessed she was bedridden. An old woman called Margaret brought me my meals, and the innkeeper was around me at all hours. I wanted some time to myself, so I invented a job for him. He had a motor bicycle, and I sent him off next morning for the daily paper, which usually arrived with the post in the late afternoon. I told him to keep his eyes skinned and make note of any strange figures he saw, keeping a special sharp lookout for motors and aeroplanes. Then I sat down in real earnest to Scudder's notebook. 
"'He came back at midday with the Scotsman. "'There was nothing in it "'except some further evidence of Paddock and the milkman, "'and a repetition of yesterday's statement "'that the murderer had gone north. "'But there was a long article, "'reprinted from the Times, "'about Carolitas and the state of affairs in the Balkans, "'though there was no mention of any visit to England. "'I got rid of the innkeeper for the afternoon, "'for I was getting very warm in my search for the cipher.' As I told you, it was a numerical cipher, and by an elaborate system of experiments, I had pretty well discovered what were the nulls and stops. The trouble was the key word, and when I thought of the odd million words he might have used, I felt pretty hopeless. But about three o'clock, I had a sudden inspiration. The name Julia Chechenyi flashed across my memory. Scudder had said it was the key to the Carolitas business, and it occurred to me to try it on his cipher. And it worked. The five letters of Julia gave me the position of the vowels. A was J, the tenth letter of the alphabet, and so represented by X in the cipher. E was U equals XXI, and so on. Chechenyi gave me the numerals for the principal consonants. I scribbled that scheme on a bit of paper and sat down to read Scudder's pages. In half an hour I was reading with a whitish face and fingers that drummed on the table. I glanced out of the window and saw a big touring car coming up the glen towards the inn. It drew up at the door, and there was the sound of people alighting. There seemed to be two of them, men in aquascutums and tweed caps. Ten minutes later, the innkeeper slipped into the room, his eyes bright with excitement. "'There's two chaps below looking for you,' he whispered. "'They're in the dining room, having whiskies and sodas. They asked about you, and said they'd hoped to meet you here.' "'Oh, and they described you jolly well, down to your boots and shirt. "'I told them you'd been here last night "'and had gone off on a motor bicycle this morning. "'One of the chaps swore like a navvy. "'I made him tell me what they looked like. "'One was a dark-eyed thin fellow with bushy eyebrows. "'The other was always smiling and lisped in his talk. "'Neither was any kind of foreigner. "'On this my young friend was positive. "'I took a bit of paper and wrote these words in German, "'as they were part of a letter.' Black Stone. Scudder had got on to this, but he could not act for a fortnight. I doubt if I could do any good now, especially as Carolitis is uncertain about his plans. But if Mr. T. advises, I will do the best I... I manufactured it rather nearly, so that it looked like a loose page of a private letter. Take this down, and say it was found in my bedroom, and ask them to return it to me if they overtake me. Three minutes later I heard the car begin to move and peeping from behind the curtain caught sight of the two figures. One was slim, the other was sleek. It was the most I could make of my reconnaissance. The innkeeper appeared in great excitement. "'Your paper woke them up,' he said gleefully. The dark fellow went as white as death and cursed like blazes, and the fat one whistled and looked ugly. They paid for their drinks with a half-sovereign and wouldn't wait for change. "'Now I'll tell you what I want you to do.' I said, get on your bicycle and go up to Newton Stewart to the chief constable. Describe the two men and say you suspect them of having had something to do with the London murder. You can invent reasons. The two will come back, never fear. Not tonight, for they'll follow me forty miles along the road. But the first thing tomorrow morning, tell the police to be here bright and early. He set off like a docile child while I worked at Scudder's notes. 
When he came back, we dined together, and in common decency, I had to let him pump me. I gave him a lot of stuff about lion hunts and the Matabele War, thinking all the while what tame businesses these were, compared to this I was now engaged in. When he went to bed, I sat up and finished Scudder. I smoked in a chair till daylight, for I couldn't sleep. About eight next morning, I witnessed the arrival of the two constables and a sergeant. About eight next morning, I witnessed the arrival of two constables and a sergeant. They put the car in a coach house under the innkeeper's instructions and entered the house. Twenty minutes later, I saw from my window a second car come across the plateau from the opposite direction. It did not come up to the inn, but stopped two hundred yards off in a shelter of a patch of wood. I noticed that its occupants carefully reversed it before leaving it. A minute or two later, I heard their steps on the gravel outside the window. My plan had been to lie hid in my bedroom and see what happened. I had a notion that, if I could bring the police and my other more dangerous pursuers together, something might work out of it to my advantage. But now I had a better idea. I scribbled a line of thanks to my host, opened the window, and dropped quietly into a gooseberry bush. Unobserved, I crossed the dike and crawled down the side of a tributary burn and won the high road on the far side of the patch of trees. There stood the car, very spick and span in the morning sunlight, but with the dust on her which told of a long journey. I started her, jumped into the chauffeur's seat, and stole gently on out to the plateau. Almost at once the road dipped, so that I lost sight of the inn, but the wind seemed to bring me the sound of angry voices. Join us next week for Chapter 4 of The 39 Steps by John Buchan. And if you're enjoying our show, please do take a moment to leave us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road, and make sure to share it with a friend and help someone new subscribe to us. That's what really helps us move forward. Thanks for being great listeners and fans, and don't forget our other shows, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where this week we have a Sherlock Holmes adventure plane, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, and others. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time.